on Sundays when we get together with the kids, we group around, we ask a lot of questions, and we kind of grow with each other. So that's kind of what life groups are about. It's kind of the same thing. It's really fun that we get together, we learn, we take the Bible, we read, then we ask questions, and then we kind of apply how that applies in our lives today. What do we get out of this for today? How do we take action? And I think in life groups, those are the exact questions that you ask from each other. So if you are interested in joining a life group, then you go to our website and we will be able to help you get connected. Standing here in your presence
Well, good morning and welcome to worship at La Jolla Community Church. We're continuing our series, uh, The Good Life According to God. Last week, we were talking about uh, the question, what is the good life? Uh, what is a truly good life? Not just a, a good life in the sense that I've arrived and I can kick back and enjoy things. I'm surrounded by all my toys and all my goods. We're talking about a good life, a life that happens inside of us and is expressed all around us. Uh, that kind of good life, according to God, is really what we're made for. It's what every person wants. And we looked at that through the life of Barnabas last week. And we concluded three things, three observations about what this good life according to God looks like. One, the good life according to God is a life of love and abundant generosity. And by generosity, we mean time, talent, treasure, network, character qualities, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are all aspects of generosity. Uh, generosity is what we bring that adds value. Uh, what we offer that gives people a sense that life is better. And so that was the first idea. The good life according to God is a life of love and abundant generosity. And then what kind of generosity? This, this generosity is about blessing, not impressing. The goal of generosity, according to the good life of God, is not impressing people with how awesome we are or how uh, dependent they might be on us, but rather how we bring a blessing from God himself when we show up. Uh, not by using religious language or doing religious things, but by being relationally dialed into our relationship with God that includes other people. That somehow the overflow of what God is doing in us blesses them. So the goal of generosity is to bless, not impress. You're so smart. You're so spiritual. No, I'm so glad to know you. You're a gift to me. And so the third thing would be that we live the good life according to God by living generously in His name. Why? Because our generosity without God is not sustainable. We all get compassion fatigue. We all get giving fatigue. We get generosity fatigue. Uh, we stop giving after a while, stop being generous because we think, well, hey, why? What's in it for me? But when we are, are living generously out of uh, the abundance of what God is doing us, uh, we find that the, our generosity is actually um, self-healing, uh, it's renewing. It's energizing. So the good life according to God is a life of love and abundant generosity. The good life is about blessing, not impressing. And the good life according to God is living generously in His name. And all of this is doable and possible. And so the next question, the question we're asking today is this, what shapes a person to become like that? Because it's more than just their sunny disposition, uh, the affluent life that they live. This is something that all people with any kind of personality have access to. And here's the, here's the, the context, the larger context. It's part of what, what we see in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis, uh, excuse me, Genesis 17. Genesis 17 verse 7. Uh, God says this, I will establish my covenant. I will establish my covenant, my relationship, initiated by me. Between me and you and your descendants, and after you, their descendants, generations upon generation, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So I think you have the slide in front of you on the screen. Let me read it one more time. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and uh, your descendants after you. 
Uh, this is a profound promise from God. It's an incredible gift. It's not just for us. It's for us and our children and our children and grandchildren and their children as well. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, one of the great uh, sayings in Israel is this. If you want to bless yourself, uh, build a vineyard, plant a vineyard. If you want to bless your children, uh, plant olive trees. If you want to bless your grandchildren and beyond, plant oaks. Plant a vineyard, plant an olive tree, plant an oak. So you see, this is an everlasting covenant, meaning it's an everlasting gift and blessing from God. And by participating in that covenant, we become the kind of people who can live into those things that we just talked about regarding what it means to live the good life according to God. And I want to explore that with you this morning. So uh, to sum that up so far, we're created by God for the good life, established by a holy covenant initiated by God. That sustains us, that inspires us, that equips us, trains us, corrects us, perpetuates this covenant in us, to our children, to our grandchildren, uh, and, and beyond. How does that resonate with you, becoming that kind of a person? I'm assuming you probably are this kind of a person already. And you simply need to be encouraged and reminded that that's who you are. But if this is new to you, and it seems a bit daunting and overwhelming, far-fetched even, I couldn't be that possibly generous. This is what God does when He works in us and through us. How does He do that? By, by forming us and transforming us. By shaping us. And in that process of shaping us through His Word, through His Spirit, through relationships, we're transformed. We become something other than what we started out as. This is a beautiful thing about seeing a baby go through a process of formation in their personhood, their character, their life experience, but also watching the transformation of them from the time they're a baby to a fully mature adult. If you see the pictures in that family album, the, the cute little baby, the little kid, uh, the, the gangly teenager, and then uh, the emerging adult. It, it's, a, it's a fantastic transition that you see. It's a, it's a picture of transformation. And of course, what we can't see in those pictures is the formation that is creating a person who, in, in terms of their own personality and, and the way that they not only experience life but express life, they are people who are people filled with goodness and kindness and all those other qualities that we admire. Okay, so I want to look at uh, three things, uh, two today and one I'm going to come back to next week. But the first thing I want to look at is this, that we need dependable spiritual guides and formative spiritual experiences. We need dependable spiritual guides, people who influence us in a way that's accurate, informed, aligned with God's purposes, and that we also need formative spiritual experiences. Now, that's why we think camp, for example, is a big deal. Every kid, every teenager, every adult should have a camp experience. That is a, a, a portable community, a mobile community uh, for a weekend or a week where, where they are immersed in community and, and reflecting on their faith and looking at the implications of it. Oh, that's why we think people should be in life groups. They meet weekly or, or bi-weekly to, to open up God's Word together and reflect on it together and to talk about where they are in their relationship with God and, and other people. Uh, this is why we believe that, that parents are the primary spiritual guides for their children. Setting up, facilitating these spiritual experiences, bringing them to church, bringing them to Sunday school, encouraging them to get involved in, in youth activities, uh, 
reading together, praying together, processing life together. This is the great Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema is just that word, hey, listen up, Israel. Shema, Israel. The Lord is one. Do these things with your children. Talk about these things. And then it describes all the ways you could talk about these things. So you see the comprehensive nature of being a spiritual guide, facilitating spiritual experiences. We need dependable spiritual guides. Wouldn't it be great if the primary pastor in your life growing up was your mom or dad, your grandparents? They just exuded this incredible love of God and for God that, that, that blessed you. That knowledge just came out of them in the, in, in throughout the day, not in terms of little lectures, but observations about life. How powerful and beautiful that would be for us to, to, to be nurtured in that. How wonderful, uh, conversely, for us to be the person who is presenting that, providing that. So we need that. Uh, I want to give you a, kind of an anti-example of this, though, uh, from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 51 to 52. Uh, Mark, writing this, uh, Mark who starts out this Gospel saying, uh, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. At the end of it, as he's describing those last hours in Jesus' life, he talks about Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and his disciples are with him, and then a group comes to arrest him. And at that moment, uh, everything falls apart. Uh, and Mark records that here. Mark 14, 51. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. What an odd addition to this. Mark tells us that everyone deserted Jesus and fled. Why does he add this other reference to a young man? Well, he's talking about himself. He was the young man. Mark is saying, you know, I'm embarrassed to say, after, after my introduction in this gospel and writing this gospel, we come to this key point in the story, and I've got to say, as, as a young man, probably a teenager, I was tagging along with my spiritual guys, those people that I admired most, Peter and the others, and when they turned and ran away, I did likewise. As I ran, uh, one, of the, one of the guards grabbed my, my tunic all he had on was his linen tunic, and I was so scared, I just kept running. Uh, I was naked, but at least I was free. Uh, and so he's showing us why he and we need that covenant from God. That everlasting covenant that's mentioned in Genesis 17, we all need that. We all need that. And he's saying that his gospel, now that we know is the gospel of Mark, describes the fulfillment, the continuation in real time of what God had promised in Genesis 17. Otherwise, we're naked and ashamed. We're running, we're hiding, we're failing. All right, so that's sort of an anti-example of the fact that we need dependable spiritual guides and formative spiritual experiences. Because right then, Mark did not have any dependable spiritual guides. He had a bunch of guys running, and so that's what he did. But he did, in, in, a, in a funny sort of a way, counterintuitive way, have a formative spiritual experience. He sighs on spiritual poverty. A kid with a linen tunic on runs away naked and ashamed. By chapter 16, 
The resurrection of Jesus reveals a young man, presumably an angel, sitting in an empty tomb in a white linen tunic, saying to some women, he's not here, he's risen. So Mark is saying, this is the difference. The aspirational notion of this covenant is transformed when we actually get to know the one who made the covenant. And so this was a negative formative spiritual experience for him to produce something very profound. And that's what follows next. So we need dependable spiritual guides and formative spiritual experiences. The second point is this, God provides them. God provides the spiritual guides and the experiences we need. And so this is a fast forward. Uh, Later, uh, probably about 15 years later, we see an experience where Peter has been arrested by one of the various Herods. There's Herod the Great, there's Herod Antipas, now Herod Agrippa. So this is probably uh, the early 40s. Agrippa wants to make an impression on the people, so he, he has James, the brother of John, executed, and he arrests Peter. And he's going to present him. It's the, it's the Passover time, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he's going to bring Peter out as a trophy. Hey, see, uh, I've, 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 we've arrested this guy. What do you want us to do with him? Uh, because by now the faith had been growing and growing and growing. And it had become contentious for some people. It was threatening to them. Both to the Romans, gosh, what's going on here? Uh, and, and to some of those Jewish religious leaders who were saying, we're not really sure this is uh, what it's supposed to be. The Messiah would come and be triumphant and overtake the Romans. Instead, this is a different kind of a thing that we're seeing, fulfilling that covenant of God from Genesis 17. So Peter was kept in prison, we see, and this is in Acts chapter 12, verses 5 to 17. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The church, meaning people everywhere, but particularly a group of people there in Jerusalem, meeting in real time to pray for Peter's uh, release. But it looked very bad because Agrippa had just killed James, the brother of John, and why wouldn't he be thinking the same thing about Peter? So it looked very, very desperately bad for Peter. So the people are praying earnestly for him. And the night before Herod was to bring Peter to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, <laughs> heavy chains on each wrist, guards in front of him, guards outside his cell, guards beyond that, uh, being, being sure that he was not going anywhere. And sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. The angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up. I mean, this feels like uh, being a, a teenager being awakened by your mom and dad on a Saturday morning and they're saying, hey, get up, it's a great day. We, just, we don't want to waste it. And you're thinking, I just want to sleep. You're disoriented. Why are we getting up? Why, why are you waking me up? So Peter awakes with a start, no doubt, disoriented, and, and there's somebody in his cell saying, get up, get dressed, quick. And it says, the chains fell off Peter's wrists, and then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. <laughs> okay. And at this point, again, disoriented, is this a dream, a vision, is this real? This is bizarre. And, but Peter obeyed him, did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. Do you ever feel that way about your relationship with God? You see God, you have a sense that God is up to something, but you're thinking, is this really happening? Uh, Do my prayers really get answered? Does, Does life go better 
even in the face of very big difficulties and setbacks, when I follow God. And remember, not every spiritual experience is a happy one. Sometimes, they're the, sometimes the worst experiences we're going through, later we find out that God turned a bad day into a very good day. That was part of the spiritual experience, right? So he wasn't really sure what was happening. He thought perhaps he was seeing a vision, it says. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. So this gate, the gate opens. And this has got to be a freaky to Peter thinking, I'm in the prison that nobody emerges from. And I've just walked past a bunch of guards and the gate opened and I'm now on the street. You couldn't help but look over your shoulder and say, are they right behind me? Or am I going to wake up and find out, oh, I'm still in prison with chains on both wrists and big uh, angry guards sitting next to me? They went through the gate, and when they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And at this point, Luke, writing Acts, tells us that it occurred to Peter that maybe this was God being up to something. and Maybe this is really God at work. Do you ever feel like you're a little bit late to the party understanding God's work in your life? I certainly am. And so what does Peter do? It says he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. John Mark, Barnabas' cousin. The one we just talked about who wrote the Gospel of Mark and talked about running away. And there many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance. The door had a, uh, the house had a small courtyard and a, and a small wall and a gate. Uh, for security purposes, keep animals from perhaps getting out in the city environment. And so here's Peter standing at the gate, knocking. And a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she knew it was Peter. She was so excited, she ignored him and ran back into the house. She was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now, of course, these people being godly people, praying for his deliverance, said, you'd like to think they said, well, of course, we've been praying for that. Instead, they said, you're out of your mind. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Oh, really? You're out of your mind, Rhoda, uh, because he's not going anywhere. He's in that horrible prison. Herod Agrippa is not going to let him go. He's probably going to die. And so, come on. You're hallucinating. You're fantasizing. Can't possibly happen. But when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, then maybe it must be his angel. Uh, kind of a flimsy theological response. Well, maybe he's dead, and this is an angel coming, uh, giving us a sense, that, that uh, a message about Peter. Do you ever find yourself trying to make sense of things that uh, are, are bigger than what you're normally used to making sense of? Our sense of logic and what should be kicks into gear, and we, we, we want to diminish the work of God in us and around us. We want to chalk it up to being a coincidence or a happenstance, or maybe I'm over-spiritualizing it. Instead of saying, you know what, I think maybe God is up to something. The, of course, the extreme other way is to say everything is supernatural, and, and you, you don't differentiate between the fact that God works through normal situations all the time throughout the day. And every once in a while we see some very unusual way that God chooses to work. In any case, Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, 
they were astonished. Again, they were surprised. What? Well, yeah, but weren't you praying for me? Right, yeah, of course, yeah. We didn't actually expect to see you, though. Uh, how about you? Do you ever find yourself like that? I am constantly astonished when God answers prayer. It's embarrassing to say, I'm a pastor. You'd think I'd say, of course, I prayed. I'm as astonished as anyone when prayers are answered. When things go right. Why? Well, because we live in a fallen world. We're more likely to run uh, than to stop long enough to say, Lord, it's really great to be a part of what you're doing. So they were astonished, but they quickly realized, okay, we don't need to be astonished. We can be grateful and we can celebrate. Uh, so, so Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and, de- and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Now, this was a significant spiritual experience for Mark, don't you think? Because while this is all happening, uh, Mark's cousin Barnabas had been sent up to Antioch, a major city in the Roman Empire, modern-day Syria, to see what God was doing in this church that was exploding with people coming to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. Uh, Jews uh, and even some Gentiles. Uh, While he was there, Barnabas recruited Paul, who was living in his hometown of Tarsus, and brought him so he could teach the people in Antioch. Together they were having such a powerful teaching ministry that when uh, it was prophesied that there would be a famine in Jerusalem, the people got together and said, let's pull an offering together, send it to the people in Jerusalem uh, with, with Barnabas and Paul. So Barnabas and Paul have come down now uh, to present this to the church. So somehow they're part of this whole uh, amazing situation where Peter is brought out of prison. And a mark here is being shaped by dependable spiritual guides, having had a profound uh, spiritual experience, seeing how God had delivered Peter. He's seen how dangerous it is to represent the gospel. James has died. He saw how dangerous it is. Peter was arrested, and it didn't look good. But now he's also seen the way Peter was delivered by God. So he's seen this whole panoply, this whole panorama of the way God is at work. It's dangerous, but it's good. I want to leave you there and come back next week because next week we'll pick it up with Barnabas and Saul now returning from Jerusalem, going back to Antioch, but bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we're looking at a whole new chapter of John Mark's life of being spiritually guided and being set up for some spiritual experiences that would change his life. We'll pick it up next week. So Lord Jesus, I pray that for each one of us, as we reflect on where we are, that we would be paying attention to what you're doing in us and around us. That, Lord, we would not just be astonished, but we'd be grateful and delighted when we see you at work. We wouldn't be discouraged when things are going wrong, but we'd see that you somehow are going to use these things, perhaps in us, perhaps through us. That, Lord, you bring good out of even the most horrible situations. That, That that's because, Lord, you have made a covenant to bless generation upon generation. And so we thank you for that. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you have a great rest of the day, uh, whatever you do. Uh, I, I, I invite you again to give us your prayer request so we can pray for you. Uh, I, I ask you again to um, uh, contribute, to help us continue the ministry uh, that we have together at La Jolla Community Church. I want to remind you that that you are not a spectator in this church or a spectator of the gospel. You're a full participant.
that we together are a team for God. So I ask you the question, what are you going to do with this? I could come up with all kinds of applications for you, but really the best applications come out of you being thoughtful and prayerful about what is God saying to me? Uh, We're all about studying the Bible, but that's inadequate. What do you mean inadequate? We don't just study the Bible at La Jolla Community Church. We do the Bible. We don't just want to know things about Jesus. We want to do the things that Jesus did. Uh, That's what it means to be alive in Christ. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. So what would that look like for you right now as you deal with some maybe difficult situations? Don't let COVID be an excuse. Don't let your economy, uh, personally or nationally, be an excuse. Don't let anything get in the way of, of you understanding that God is at work in you now and forever. So may the Lord bless you and keep you as you partner with Him and, and others in the body of Christ. May the Lord give you everything you need. Be faithful to Him. To be formed and transformed by Him. To live thoroughly into this covenant that God has invited us to be a part of. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.